You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. You can find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so wonderful to see you. And uh, Josh, that, I love, uh, thanks for leading us in that prayer. So you know Hugh Robotham. Hugh, Hugh Robotham is one of our elders in Midland, and uh, he just just had a burden on his heart that uh, just about the whole the whole issue of humility. You know, you're talking about self righteousness. Uh, probably the greatest defense against self righteousness is humility. And um, and so we we thought, Hugh, let's give that word to the church. We started the year with with Hugh preaching to us about humility. And, and just the thought, as you were praying, just the thought hit me. I don't know that any other fruit can grow very well unless humility is growing in us, you know. So that really, thanks, that really touched my heart. Um, it is so good to see you guys this morning. Um, and am I, so I'm hearing some echoing, and I, is, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> to speak up? That seems counterintuitive. <laughs> I'll, I'll, in a minute, you'll, I don't have too much trouble speaking up, so, um, so you'll be hearing that in, in just a minute. Y'all, it is so good to see you. Um, I just want you to know how the Lord is using you as a church family in our region, and, and so much of it is what you model and the examples that you, you, you have given to us over the years. Um, we, we have benefited in a huge way by watching your love of a precious senior pastor, of a church planting pastor, Bob Odom, and how you, you loved and learned and served uh, with, with Bob as the senior pastor here. And then we watched and we learned about how when it's time for a senior pastor to pass the baton to the next senior pastor, and we've watched and learned how you've done that so, so well. And then we've watched and learned how you had faith to send out a staff member, a significant elder in Philip Estrada, who I call the fourth raised son, you know, because he grew up in Midland and he's really a part of our family and, and we love him dearly. And, uh, and I, just, I just know how it felt when Philip left Midland. <laughs> and, and he was just a whippersnapper, you know, then. He was just this knucklehead. He's still a little knuckleheadish, but... Um, Oh my goodness, he's grown into such a wonderful man of God. And, and you had faith that, that the expansion of the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and through the planting of churches, that's what our allegiance ultimately is to, isn't it? And so we want to give our best to that mission. So, so we've learned, as you've done that, we've learned as, in, as you embrace then another generation of, of ministers in, in welcoming Kyle and Monica to the church and and all that they, the Lord is doing in bringing grace to, to you through them, but also grace to them from you. So there's just so much that we learn as a region. So it's, we're watching and learning, and we're so thankful for each and every one of you. Um, and I, I got to spend some time last night with your leadership team. And I, I just these are those things where you just wish that... that the congregation could be a fly on the wall just to hear the prayers that your leaders pray, to hear their pursuit of godliness, to hear their 
love for you as a church family, uh, it was provoking to me. I want to be more like them when I grow up. Um, so, so you are so blessed to have them as your leaders. Well, let's turn to the scriptures this morning. Um, we are studying the book of Revelation uh, in Midland, and uh, and I got to be honest with you. I'll just let's just let's just lay everything on the line. I am so, I am so desirous. I, I talked about growing up. I would love to grow up someday. We haven't preached Revelation. I've been in I've been in Midland for 29 years. We haven't preached Revelation mainly because I was kind of scared to. And what a horrible thing for a pastor to say. Um, I had read the book. I hadn't really studied it. Um, and the Lord just kept just putting more and more and more on my heart. You need to teach this book. And I think what was freaking me out, some of it was, well, all the controversies about the prophecies and, and are you going to be premillennial, pre, I can't even say it, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or if you're whatever age group, what, thir- 18 to 30, you're just a millennial. You just like being a millennial, you know? So, you know, it's just, oh man, that's going to be a lot of controversy. It's going to, so as, I just want to give you a thought as we turn to the book this morning. Um, the Lord really put it in my heart that the book of Revelation, God intended that book to pastor you more than prophesy to you. And and I hope you'll take that phrase and maybe read Revelation with that thought in mind. How does the Lord want to pastor me through this book, not just prophesy to me? How does he want to speak to me about my life and growth and godliness now, not just what, what pertains to the future? Uh, uh, historically and redemptively. So I hope you'll you kind of tuck that away in your heart. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and, we're, and then we're going to study Revelation 2, 18 through 29. So before, before we start reading it, let me kind of give you a little bit of roadmap as to why we're going in that direction. Um, I, loved, I loved one of the songs we sing, You Are the Glorious Christ. And so we are going to behold the glorious Christ in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We're going to behold the glorious Christ. And I want to invite you to regularly turn to those passages. We need to regularly be reminded of all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us. And then in chapters 2 and 3, isn't you guys, it's an amazing thing. The clearer we see Jesus, the clearer we see our own hearts. And so in this mastery, in this wonderful symmetry, and the beauty of how Revelation is organized, the first thing God does is he doesn't say first, look at yourself. We talked about last night about how it's just hard to judge ourselves very well, right? I either think way too highly of myself or I'm pretty self-condemning. I don't know which kind of you fall out on in those ways. So you know what the Lord says? Don't first look at yourself. Look at Christ. Look at the glorious Christ, and in seeing him more clearly, we're going to see ourselves more clearly. Well, there you have chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. He calls their attention and their allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords so that they can then look at themselves. In, in, founded in the grace of God, founded in the work of Christ, but also being willing to deal pretty radically with some pretty bad sin issues in our lives. 
And so that's how you kind of see the book flow, and you're going to hear again and again, if you read chapters 1 through 3, this word keeps coming up, for him who overcomes, for him who overcomes, for him who overcomes. It almost sounds a little bit intimidating, like, I, I, don't, think my, I don't think of myself much as an overcomer, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm more of a succumber <laughs> than an overcomer, and Lord, how are we going to overcome? Well, here comes Revelation of 4 and 5. And here we go, another glorious vision of God reigning on his throne in chapter 4. And then the lamb standing as one slain, as though he were slain in Revelation 5. Triumphant over sin and over Satan, over all the world's temptations. That's how we overcome. So can you see right there? It's very pastoral, isn't it? So take a peek at it. I would just encourage you. Take a peek at one through five, and I just think you'll be blessed. I hope you'll be blessed with this morning's uh, sermon as well. Um, I say all these things, precious ones, because we cannot afford to have a one-dimensional view of God. And I, I really think in the United States Church, just I think one of the perils of not, uh, of not having uh, churches teach and preach expositorily I think it's just really easy to start following Jesus because of your favorite attribute of Jesus. Um, it seems that we reduce God to just one or two of our favorite attributes. Um, so, man, I really like the forgiveness part of Jesus. Man, that is awesome. I'm not so sure about the wrath and the judgment part, you know. Or, or I'm a lover, and I really like the love passages. I, mean, I really love 1 Corinthians 13. You know, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Well, I'm a truth teller. We need some truth telling in this church. And you, okay, well, all right, yeah. Don't be one-dimensional. And when you look at the glorious Christ that we're just going to read here, and when you look at chapters 4 and 5, you begin to see this, you begin to hear this holy. Holy, holy is the Lord. He is not one-dimensional. He is other than us. He is utterly beautiful and pure and righteous and merciful and, and judge, righteous judgment. And he is all these things. And we, we need to know him as he is. And that's a huge issue. Because if we reduce God to just one or two of our favorite attributes, if we reduce God in one, to one or two favorite attributes, invariably what we do is we're, we're reducing God and we're increasing, we increase in compromise. It just seems to happen. We, we, the, 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 the more tunnel vision we see God, it just seems that there's an introduction to compromise and sin because we're not seeing all that God is. Revelation is such a cure for that. <laughs> it's such a helpful book. For that, and that gets, that brings us to our, the church that we'll be studying today, and that's the church at Thyatira, and their problem—they were genuinely a loving, loving church, and God commends them for that. They knew God to be loving, but they had gradually come to define love as being tolerant of just about anything. Because isn't that loving? We want to be accepting, don't we? Yeah. We're just, we're just a love church, you know? 
Well, that resulted in being tolerant of false teachers, wrong beliefs, immoral lifestyles, all in the name of love, all in the name of acceptance. They were loving, but they were undiscerning. They were loving, but unbiblically affirming. Y'all, love and truth are the, are, are the, the, the two sides of one coin. It's, it's, you know, you've heard of flipping, sometimes people flip a coin, but it's a two-headed coin. It's, it's kind of like what they were doing. It's like the only, the only head to their coin was, was love. And their tolerance began to be turned into transgression. And that's the title of the sermon today, When Tolerance Turns into Transgression. So would you join me in reading, starting in uh, Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 20, and then we'll go into Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. Would you mind standing as we read the word, particularly with this beautiful, glorious vision of Jesus? So if you're new today, you know, when we open the Bible, this isn't like opening the sports page. This isn't like opening a chemistry book and, or something you're studying in college. This isn't a blog this isn't just an opinion piece or an editorial. This is the inerrant, inspired, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. God is about to speak to us in His Word. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now into chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance <laughs> and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to what the Spirit says to life givers. In Jesus' name, please be seated. Heavenly Father, would you, would you speak to us through this precious word of grace and truth truth and love. We don't want to stay the same. And Lord, we're living in a world where uh, tolerance is like the preeminent virtue, it seems, of unbelieving people. And even, maybe even naive or uh, biblically ill-informed Christians. So God, we, we're asking to grow in two ways. We want to increasingly be tender-hearted, but we also want to have a, a spine of steel made firm by truth so that we can represent you truthfully and with Christ-like love. Only you can do that, Lord. So please, would you cause your word to do your work in our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, our main point this morning, uh, hopefully you, you'd be able to kind of see this coming out of, uh, out of the text, and, and I think this is, our, well, yeah, you guys, okay, so we're I'm just on the same page. Guys, always express gratitude to the AV people. Um, <laughs> Especially when they have to deal with me. So, I mean, I told them when, we, when I came in this morning, so much of Sunday stands on their shoulders, you know? And, and, and when they're doing their jobs well, well, you don't notice. <laughs> because, because they're doing so well, you know? But man, when the machinery starts going bonkers and everything, it's the weirdest thing because thousands of eyes now are looking back at the, the audiovisual Booth, thank you guys for your labors of love. Uh, I, I truly am I'm standing on your shoulders today, so thank you. Thank you for helping give the gospel the visibility that, that it deserves. So our main point this morning is this. To become more like Christ, God calls us to love at all times because Christ does, but not to tolerate all things because Christ doesn't. I'll just say it one more time. To become more like Christ, 
God calls us to love at all times because Christ does, but not to tolerate all things because Christ doesn't. So here's our first point. God calls us to love what he loves. So let's dig into that a little bit. Give you a little bit of background on Thyatira. Of all the seven cities listed in, this, in, this, in the letters to the seven churches, Thyatira was the smallest. It was really the least important politically. It wasn't really well-known politically, economically. It wasn't a major religious center. It wasn't really a re regional political capital. It's just a simple, busy, minor Macedonian trading community. It was known for, if it was known for anything, it was known for the number of trade guilds. So I guess the best, how to, to kind of take that from what, what that meant to them and trying to bring it up to what it means to us today. I, be careful the way I say this, but it was, it, it, you could kind of say labor union, so to speak. I say that carefully. I used to work for Shell Oil. I was in the human resource department before the Lord brought me in full-time uh, pastoral ministry. So definitely had a lot of engagement or, over just employee issues and talking to trade unions and thank God for the redemptive purposes that they can serve. So, we're not, so this isn't a commentary about today's trade unions, but it's really the only way I can kind of give you a little bit of a feel for what they were going through at this time. Uh, because in, in, in this time of history, you, you really couldn't have a, 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 a career. If you were a carpenter, you would have been in, in, a, in a, a, a trade guild for carpentry. If you were an engineer, you would have been in a trade guild for engineering. If you were an artist, you, had, you, you really couldn't find work unless you were in one of these trade guilds. And here's the crazy thing about the trade guilds. Each trade guild kind of had their own little god. So, you know, it, we're the trade guild who follows Apollo. We're the, we're the trade guild who follows Zeus. We're, it, they, they all had their own god. It was kind of superstition, religious, mixed in superstition stuff. Because if we could appease our God, guess what that means to the bottom line for us? That means better money, better benefits, right? So, so everyone was in a trade guild, and if you weren't willing to be in a trade guild, boy, you were going to be on welfare. You were going to be you know, looking in trash cans for food. You were going to be persecuted if you weren't in one of these trade guilds. And what they did at their, their monthly meetings, they would have a feast to a false god. So it's, it's come on in. You know, some of you, how many, you know, we have company lunches. We, we, we have a banquet. Uh, we have do, the, do these things. But isn't it, thank God, that they're not asking you to come in and worship Zeus. But that's what that happened here. And then, and then the, 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 so there'd be a celebration. There may be music. There may be just a party atmosphere. And then they would serve the meat that was sacrificed to that idol. And you're a Christian. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? In verse 18, we're hearing about Jesus. And he's, he's referred to not as the Son of Man, as we read in chapter 1, but he's referred to as the Son of God. And he points us to his eyes of blazing fire. These are laser eyes. These are eyes that cut through our defenses. These are eyes that reveal what's ruling our hearts. These are eyes that, that know what's dominating our thoughts. 
These are eyes that know why we do what we do, what our motives are. These are piercing eyes, and they're both eyes of love, but they're also eyes of righteous judgment. You know those kind of people that are, none of us are perfectly like this in the Lord, but you know the kind of people who you don't have to say a word to. You get with them, and you look into their eyes, and one look at their eyes, you see compassion. It's the kind of person you can just feel like, I can, I, I'm safe with this person. I can confess the deepest, dark, darkest parts. I don't have to perform for this person. I don't have to earn this person's acceptance. That's, it's those kind of eyes. They just kind of pierce you with, with love and acceptance and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And then there's some other kinds of people that when you look into their eyes, you're convicted. It's like, I don't always want to be around those kind of people. <laughs> or, or I want to put on sunglasses or something to protect me from their laser-like eyes. Because you know they're following the Lord. You know they're, they're seeking to live a godly lifestyle. They want to grow in godliness. And when they look at you, and you, maybe it's just a guilty conscience, I don't know what it might be in us, but you just feel convicted. Well, multiply that times eternity, and you've got the eyes of the Lord. Perfect in love, perfect in righteous assessing and evaluation and correction and judgment. In verse 23, it goes a little further, and it says that his eyes are, his eyes are really too pure to look upon sin. And he goes further, and he says, I am he who searches the mind and heart. In other words, it's, it's essentially, you could really say this it's, it, it, as a part of the text. I know your guts. I know you at the deepest level that you don't maybe even let your spouse know sometimes. Um, I know you, and I want to I want to meet you at that level. Christianity, guys, is not first and foremost about the behaviors of Christianity. It's God dealing with our hearts, and that's where He's wanting to speak to our hearts this morning. He wants to reinforce His authority over our lives an authority to correct, an authority to judge. And he reminds us of that authority because he also points us to his feet that are like burnished bronze. It's just too holy to walk among wickedness. He's, these are feet that tread down his enemies in judgment, uh, the, the, the enemies of Satan and sin and death. He treads them down with those feet. And so verse 19, we go further. Jesus sees that the church at Thyatira was strong in loving God and loving their neighbors. Their love was birthed out of their faith, and their love motivated their works of service, as well as their patient endurance. And we know that because of 1 Corinthians 13, because love endures all things. So yeah, that, that's a great commendation. I want to grow in loving the Lord like that, in loving people like that. And God commended them because they were the kind of church that made you immediately feel at home, even on your first visit with them. So Austin and Sam, so I'm not doing this to embarrass you. So, so Austin is, has been in our church for two years now. Has it been two years in Midland? And, and, and just so you know, he didn't drive 7,000 miles to just come here. <laughs> yeah. um, Austin's company, uh, he works for a company in the Round Rock area, and they had him in Midland, and now they're bringing him back to Round Rock. Austin met the lovely young lady to his left, right? 
who's now his fiance, named Sam. And so this all kind of works back into the sermon. So I'm not just doing this to embarrass you guys, but I love seeing your faces. It's so good to see you. Um, this Thyatira was the kind of church where you didn't just turn and go to your, the, your buddy buddy for the last 30 years. You were looking for that new person. Or you were looking for the new face. So I hope you'll go and, and greet Austin and Sam today. <laughs> Uh, because they were just wondering, you know, is, how close is it? Maybe is the commute, could this, be, could this be a church for them? So please, introduce yourself before the service, uh, uh, before you leave today. Uh, but that's the kind of church Thyatira was. It was this, this loving church, welcoming church. These are the people who would invite you to dinner, or they'd come on over to the house for coffee. Um, this would be the people that would definitely be involved in social justice kind of ministries. They probably had soup kitchens to feed the hungry. They probably were involved in pro-life outreach. Uh, they, they loved the sanctity of human life. They, they loved the lost. They were evangelistic. And all this love pleased the Lord. Isn't that so cool that the Lord isn't just all about all correction all the time? The Lord loves to encourage his children. And so he's saying, this is so good that you're growing in Christ-like love. That's awesome. And Jesus joyfully commends them because they're actually loving God and neighbor more now. Did you notice that? Than, they, than when they were first saved uh, or when the church was first planted. Their latter works of love were exceeding their first works. So this is the first point of, well, there's a lot of points of conviction already, but this is a major point of conviction that hit me. Let's ask, let me ask you, can I, let me, can I bring you into my conviction? <laughs> it's kind of lonely here. Can you come on in with me? Um, is your love for the Lord now greater than when you were first saved? I don't know that we ask each other that enough. Now, the hope of this is, this isn't like, I dare you to love more. That's not what this is like. The grace of God is designed to help our latter love be greater than the former love. That's what God's grace is all about. The Bible says the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It gets brighter and brighter until the noonday. That's because grace is buoyant. Grace is empowering. God desires that you grow. And so you might be here just so discouraged because you've been way more aware of a sin habit this week than you've been aware of any growth in your life. Good news for you. God wants you to grow. And grace actually insists that you grow. And, 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 th and maybe this morning you're going, this is boggling my mind because I never told anybody about this. And the Lord's coming and meeting you at the heart level to give you hope for change. I, I, I want to be specific about these things. Jen and I celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary, March 22nd. And um, when I'm reading this, I thought, Lord, I almost wanted to renew my vows right then and there. You want to do it right now, babe? No? Um, Josh says, yeah, no time for vow renewal. Um, you know what I would love? I would love that the Lord would say that I gave Jan the most Christ-like love of my life in the last years of my life. You know what I'd love my sons to say? Man, dad grew the most in Christ-likeness 
at the end of his life more than in the former part of his life. You know what I, I wish my church would be able to say? He became a more godly man and devoted pastor near the end more than he was in the middle or the beginning. How about you? What are some evidences of that? You know, do you love what Jesus loves? Do you love the local church? Did you find yourself more, more committed to serving in the local church and caring for people in the local church? But that was a couple of years ago, and life's gotten really busy. We've gone through some real seasons, but it's really weird. How Have you ever noticed? We say, oh, it's a season of this. But did you know season follows season? And some of us are just in this, this circle of, oh, it's another season, it's another season, which is just really another excuse Are you loving your wife or your husband more now than before? How are you doing as a parent? How are you doing in, in your witness evangelistically at work or in the, in the neighborhood that you live in? Are we growing and increasing? Well, the Lord is commending this church because they, they were. They were growing and increasing. And it was such good news. And it's, so good, it's such good news for all of us because we all are recipients of this kind of grace. So I'm going to just pause, and I want to just pray for us. And this is just so you're, is this the end of the, it's not the end of the sermon, sorry. Um, Heavenly Father, I, really, I think if, if we all just were flat out honest, there's parts of our lives that by your grace we've grown, and we praise you for that. And there's parts of our lives and our love for you or our love for neighbor that have drifted some, subsided some. So we turn to you with thanksgiving today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for correcting us. Thank you for giving us fresh hope for ongoing change and transformation so that we can be loving you the most at the end than at the beginning. In Jesus' name. Second point is to, it's just the, just the opposite. God calls us to hate what he hates. So he calls us to love what he loves. But he also calls us to hate what he hates. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Let's just do a little Bible background. Listen, if you're going to study the book of Revelation, get ready to study the Old Testament. I get concerned that so many Revelation preachers and teachers, they're, the way they interpret Revelation is they, they use current events to interpret Revelation. Oh, no, 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 no. If you're not using the Old Testament to interpret Revelation, you're going to totally miss it. So here we go, back to the Old Testament. According to 1 Kings, some of you know that remember what Jezebel was like. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, uh, king of the Sidonians, who married Ahab, king of Israel. No, 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 that should not have been. And largely because of her influence in seeking to combine the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal, it's said of her husband in 1 Kings 16.33, 
that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So let's let's don't kind of excuse ourselves to go, well, thankfully, I'm not that bad. There's a principle here. Ahab was still a believer in the one true God. He was confessionally, oh, yeah, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's my God. That's my God. Confessionally, but functionally, here comes Jezebel. And here comes all the temptations and earthly pleasures and idols. Get it now. Best life now. That's essentially what it was. was, But, you know, with that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob God, it might take a long time to get your best life now. But if you'll follow this God, this God can get you what you want now. It's dangerous. It, it does damage to the heart of a man or woman in ways. It's slow. It's a slow, damaging spiral downward. But it, it numbs your heart. If, if you find that your heart is more numb to the Lord than, than vibrant in the Lord, I would ask, would you kind of look to see, have, have, have you been kind of drifting? You're still confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you're looking to secure to find security in employment or a salary amount or your education or, or being on the sports team or getting the best grades you can. I mean, it's just so many little good things even that can become ultimate things. And it's amazing when we become divided in our hearts, confessionally believing but functionally serving other gods, we, we grow numb. You, you wonder, where is that tenderness of heart? How long has it been that I've shed tears of joy at the, at the sound of Jesus' name and what he's done for me? Is your heart grown harder over the years? Well, that's what's happening here. That's, that's how it could get to this point of provoking the Lord more to anger more than any of the kings of Israel. Jezebel was responsible for the killing of Naboth and the confiscation of his vineyard for her husband. She sought the death of all the prophets, remember that, of Israel. Uh, including Elijah, so we got to even she came close. She was trying to get Elijah down. Her death came as a result. There was a prophecy about her death. She it came from a result of being thrown from a window. She was then trampled by a horse. And when his attempt was made to recover her body for burial, they discovered the only thing left of her was her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands, because the dogs had eaten everything else. And that was a fulfillment of the prophetic word of Elijah. So then, remember how, did any of you kind of go, when we read Revelation this morning, and about the, if you're not repentant, if you're following in the footsteps of Jezebel, did you get a little bit uneasy with deathbeds and your children? Remember, we don't, we can't have a one-dimensional view of God. There was a so-called prophetess in the church at Thyatira that Jesus described as being like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And Jesus said, I have this against you. You tolerate. You tolerate this woman whose teaching is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, eat food sacrificed to idols. The implication is that while the whole church in general did not accept the teaching and the lifestyle 
They were tolerating it. it they, weren't, they weren't coming to her in loving correction, seeking to point her to the Scriptures, encouraging her that, 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 of the goodness and greatness of God and that only the Lord can satisfy your heart, not all these other things. And they most likely tolerated her in the name of love. She'll probably go get over it. Probably just a season. In verse 24, we get a sense of what she was teaching when Jesus said there were some in her church, uh, some in the church, um, they called it, did you notice that thing called the deep things of Satan? Man, the commentators were all over the page on this. And so I'm just going to take a stab and I'm following the footsteps of, of a few that said they think that this was more sarcasm. Um, the phrase was thought to be a sarcastic way of saying that what she told the people she would teach them would be, listen to my teaching. I'll teach you the deep things of God. Listen, it's been a while since I've heard that phrase, but, it, but, but Jen and I came out of uh, a religious background and affiliation that, wasn't, that didn't study the word expositionally, that took things out of context, that aimed more at your feelings than to grow your faith through Scripture and knowledge of God and Christ and the cross. And I would hear this regularly, that the gospel, listen, the gospel is just this little starting point. The gospel is just to get you in. But you don't need the gospel anymore after you're saved because now the Lord wants to teach you the deep things of God. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. And our, our just growth of better understanding the gospel. Well, that's what, that's what I think was happening here is this woman's coming to say, listen, if you come to my Bible study, I know the elders really haven't necessarily approved this. You know, we're not really meeting on the church campus. You know, we're, we're, but, but come, because you're not going to learn this from the elders. You know, that local church thing, you're not going to learn. There needs to be some real prophets and prophetesses to, to stir you up and to take, take you into the deep things of God. Well, likely, this is, what would that be? What, give me, here's some examples. What would that be like? I think there's going to be several layers of deception. The first is that if you were really spiritual, if you were really spiritual and were really secure in your relationship with God, you could, you could go to your trade guild meeting and you could be faithful to the company you're working for, and you wouldn't lose your income or your health insurance. And, and, and listen, you can participate. You can clap your hands when all the singing is going, and, and you can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Why? Because those are just things you're doing with your body. God knows your heart. Bless your heart. God knows your heart. And He knows that you don't believe in all those things. And yet, we're supposed to be salt and light. There's supposed to be a difference in the way we raise our kids and the way we love our spouses. There's supposed to be a difference about Sundays and our, our gathering together to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's a difference in the way we manage money. There's a difference in what we consider risk and, and, and leave, living our lives, even being willing to die for this gospel. There's to be a difference in our lives. Oh, but God knows my heart. I can, I can just, I can fit in with the world. Doesn't really have to be any difference. Me and Jesus, we're still tight. 
They were thinking that that was some of this thing about the deep things of God. Let me go a little bit deeper here, but I'm, I'm just more and more concerned about how porn is gripping the church. Not just lost people. I totally understand why porn is gripping the unbeliever. But more and more at the counseling table, and more and more times we're hearing about how porn, addiction to porn, just perver- all the perversion that goes along with it. Have you, ever, have you ever been looking, what kind of movie can I watch? And you know that this movie is going to have scenes that, that are going to be illicit sex, they're gonna, they're, or they're going to represent illicit sex. And, and, you, and, you, and the thought goes, well... That doesn't affect me. It it happens more than you realize, guys. It happens more than we realize because, you know, the Lord knows my heart. I just, I really like the storyline of this movie. But it's amazing what lust does. It's amazing how lust remembers more than you think it does. God knows I love him. He knows I need to earn a living. And it's okay to be in these trade guilds and do whatever I need to do to make a living. There's just all these little subtle ways. The text indicates that God was giving Jezebel and those following her teaching time to repent. And that was likely being turned into um, this kind of teaching. Well, you know, I, I did what I thought was wrong, but I'm not getting corrected about it. No one caught me. Raising kids, isn't that so many times? If if a kid doesn't get corrected right away, he's just thinking, "This is awesome, victory! Oh, victory in stealing cookies!" You know, because it's not no one caught me, and it, so it must be okay because there was, the correction or the judgment or the punishment didn't come quickly. Is that good theology? God began convicting and correcting you right when you put your hand in the cookie jar. It's his mercy that doesn't necessarily immediately come to correct you. Giving you time to, to, to say yes to the conviction. So there was a whole lot of mess going on in this church. This would have been a teaching focused on feelings and emotions and experiences rather than teaching that the scriptures would cause people to grow in Christ-like maturity and godliness. I, I, I think a great, if, if you're visiting and looking for a home church today, I think a great thing to be listening for as you visit churches, is this church trying to appeal to my feelings or help me grow in maturity? I, I just, I, I, well, I don't think I need to say any more there. I know I could say this church would care about your maturity. Would care about you growing in godliness. Would care about you knowing Jesus better and better every day. And that in knowing him, you would be be progressively becoming more like him. They were abusing the gifts of the Spirit through this Jezebel person. This Jezebel person doesn't... that, that could be a man or a woman. It's a spirit. It's a, a mentality. Um, they were abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly prophecy, 
ascribing divine authority to her words as though they were equal to or greater than Scripture. Here's another thing. Years ago, when, when we had first moved to Midland, I asked Jan about this, there was a lady that came in, and, and um, she was from another town, and she started meeting with a few of the ladies in our church. And the more they listened to this lady, the more cynical and skeptical they became about the, the pastors of our church. So it, are, the people that you listen to, do they, do they diminish, do they speak small of the bride of Christ? There's just, just all these ways that these things can roll. And they tolerated it in the name of love. Um, they did well to remember to love what God loves, but they neglected to also remember to hate what God hates. So now I'm just going to put throughout a couple of things. Hopefully it can be helpful in terms of the notes and what will go on the screen. Precious ones, love does not equal unconditional affirmation and acceptance of every belief and lifestyle, particularly when those beliefs and lifestyles contradict what God has called us to believe and how God has called us to love. For the Christian, tolerance is first founded upon... And I just want to throw out a warning here because there's maybe some of us in here that are going to go, ah, oh, finally, somebody with... A, you know, I'm going to hear a word about being intolerant. I don't give in to the world. There's a unique way that Christians are to be intolerant. And it doesn't mean it's, it's not self-righteous. I'm going to try to unpack that here as we kind of bring this more to a close. So let's, let's think about Christian tolerance. It's first founded upon our calling to recognize every human being as being made in the image of God. That's where we start. That's where we start. And so we want to give respect and honor in that regard. It means that we're called to recognize other people's beliefs without being compelled to share them. Uh, to accept those beliefs or to affirm those beliefs, especially when they contradict the Scriptures. Loving tolerance means that you take the time. So here we go. I don't know too many people who, man, I'm a truth teller. I'm, I hate what God hates. I, I don't know too many believers that are doing this. Loving tolerance means that you take the time to learn what life experiences caused people to believe the things they're believing, the things that you that Scripture would not tolerate. So what, whatever that is, whether it's homosexual lifestyles, all the transgender confusion, um, just the, 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 just you name it. You look at the front page; you're going to just be able to find all these things. So so it's not just that we're saying no, I don't do that, because to an unbeliever, I don't do that. Oh boy, you're really winning people with that, aren't you? <laughs> But if you sit down with them with a cup of coffee and, and to say, listen, I don't believe what you believe, but I would love to know how you came to believe that. Because guess what? Now I'm just not pushing the sinner away. I'm wanting to win the sinner for Christ. I'm wanting to know how they became. So, so what, what academic background led you to believe this? What family background led you to believe this? I mean, you know all the tragedies that happen in the home. How did you come to have this view of God or to have this animosity against God? How did you come to have this view of sexuality? How did you, we don't take time. So listen, do you see, I'm being intolerant of things that are unbiblical 
while I lay my life down for those people. I think that's what the Lord's trying to call us to in this confused time. How did, the, how did academics, how did their relationships, what kind of teaching did they grow up hearing? We do this to better know how to minister God's Word to them at the heart level. And tolerance also means that as Christians, you wouldn't hesitate to say what you believe based upon God's Word and how God's Word governs how a person is to live. Which means we don't tolerate everything because Jesus doesn't tolerate everything. Do you know that an unbeliever can be an all-love person? Do you know that? Do you, an do you know an unbeliever can be a, I'm a truth person. I just tell it like it is. It takes the Holy Spirit to cause someone to be both. And it's, it's supposed to be one of the, the, the distinctives of being a Christian. We're not cancel culture, are we? We're not cancel culture, two sides of the same coin. And I just, so I pray, that I, I think I tend to drift toward tolerating things in the name of love that are, that are unbiblical and that are hurting the individual. I think I need to grow in, in, in being more courageous and truth-telling while I lay my life down for that person. I, I can be as given to fearing being called intolerant as anybody. Oh, Billy, yeah, he's that intolerant pastor. The church, oh, yeah, Sovereign Grace Church of Midland, intolerant. Like it's a curse word, you know, like somehow we're little demons there. This is going to be in the notes. The more the world accuses us of being intolerant and unloving, the more we will be tempted to be unbiblically tolerant, undiscerning, and blindly affirming of every belief and lifestyle to the point of losing our grasp on the gospel. When we lose our grasp on the gospel, we will drift into ever-increasing worldliness. David Wells has this great quote. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal, and righteousness looks strange. In the words of our own, oh, there's one of our members named Josh Snyder, he's one of our deacons. He says, this is known as the normalization of deviation. And he gets that from a, work, a workplace thing. He said, that's what we say in our workplace about safety in the oil field and stuff. We can't let there be a normalization of deviation. And I thought, wow, that's a great phrase to, for the church to be mindful of. So to be biblically tolerant, do you realize you have to believe there are moral absolutes? We don't just, oh, sure, you can believe, oh, you believe that, oh, sure, you're free to believe anything you want. There have, if you're going to be biblically tolerant, that you have to believe there are, that God's word is inerrant, that there is a morality prescribed in scripture. We have to believe things. We have to believe there's a right and wrong. We have to believe there's righteousness and sin. And standing on that foundation, in, in our, uh, the foundation of patience and mercy and forgiveness and kindness stands out of a bright light in a cancel culture world where you have to hate people that disagree with you. We disagree with sinners so, so that sinners can be saved. 
That's why we disagree. We actually declare not only what we don't believe, which is self-righteous sourpuss. Is that a word that's even used anymore? I don't even know if that's a proper word to say anymore. Being 62 years old. Guys, don't get old. It's a challenge. It is such a challenge. Um, but it's just like you're sucking on lemons. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. Hey, did we ever talk about what we are for? Can I tell you the good news? And it's the good news that makes me go, oh, these other things are going to hurt you and kill you, man. This is going to give you life over here. In fact, aren't we called precious ones to more than tolerance? Aren't we called to pray for those who persecute us? Aren't we called to love our enemies? Aren't we called to lay down our lives if that's what it takes for them to hear and see the gospel of Jesus? So that's, that was, um, oh, scared, scared me there. I thought, uh-oh, last page didn't get printed. This sermon's ending right now. Um, this is just, there's hardly anything left. So last couple of quotes here. We need both the sound doctrine of God's word and the love of Christ to empower us to hold fast to Christ and his mission to the end. J. Gresham Machen, another super quote. Indifferentism about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. People are not going to die for undefined and ever-changing truths. Man, I just, I need that. I, I have to remember that. And then the last part is, you know, this, let's don't throw the, the prophetic abuses out with the, the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. Jezebel was a false prophetess. God has given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has given us a New Testament understanding of prophecy that is beautiful and it's called, we, we call it continuationism and sovereign grace. And so we, we just want to make sure you're not, you're not looking small at the, that something's wrong with prophetic ministry. It was her abuse of prophetic ministry that was the issue. The last point is that God calls us to hold fast to Christ, our greatest gift. So, you know, a message like this, if we're going to live this out, there's, it's, it's, it's going to at some point cost you something. It's maybe going to put a, a friendship at risk. Because even if you do everything the best ways, it's still possible for somebody to be offended, isn't it? I mean, look at Jesus. He did everything perfectly, and people still can be so angry at him. And what the Lord is telling us the way this text ends is you may, you may risk some relationships, you may lose some things, but you're going to gain far more than you're going to lose. And you see that at the end, and it's where Jesus calls himself the morning star. Comes from Numbers 24, 17, speaking of a conqueror coming out of Israel. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And Jesus confirms to us right here who the star is. I, Jesus, have sent my testimony. I am the bright and morning star. The ultimate gift for the one who overcomes may not be earthly success. It may not be admiration or fame. You may not have the biggest church in the, in the world, but you're going to have the greatest gift of all. And that's an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's the eternal joy of being with him forever. Would you stand? I'm going to close. Josh, do you want to come and close us? I forgot to ask you how you wanted to close. Okay, so invite Ken.
So Ken and the team, would you guys come? Heavenly Father, We so want your word to do your work. Thank you that the letters to the seven churches are needed just as much now as they were at their time. God, there's, some, there's several things that you've really highlighted to us this morning. The hope of growth and transformation that, that our, our future love for you can be greater than the former. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. And, and give us fresh hope and faith for that. Lord, for where, for where we've been, we've had divided hearts, and we've really been more, more devoted to idols of our hearts than the Jesus that we confess on Sunday. God, we want to confess that our hearts have hardened some in that way, and we're a little more numb. Would you soften hearts? Today. Would you pour out your spirit? Help people see your smiling face and what you've accomplished for them by being the sin bearer. If there's any cancel culture, it's, it happened at the cross when Jesus' death canceled sin, paid for it fully, so that we could not only have the promise of an eternal home in heaven but a daily walk with Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Please soften hearts this morning in a way that only you can do. And Lord, would you help us be courageous as witnesses as, as we move forward in, in a world that seems to be an increasingly, uh, just a, a, the speed of the downward spiral seems, it's, it's really unfathomable God, please, would you give us courage that is birthed out of compassion? That even when we take stands, that it comes in the form of carrying our cross. Uh, that even when we, when we have to say, no, that's not the way the Scriptures prescribe, that we would do so in a way that washes dirty feet and offers nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Please, Lord, to you be the glory to the church be joy, and to a watching world, please bring salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.